All right. I am ready. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am ready. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, you should do it. <laughs> You'll be trapped. <laughs> Boy, do I. What a title. Um, I will read it. I'll preface this, though, saying we're recording at, like, a busy time outside my apartment, so enjoy these, uh, potentially, uh, the sweet ambience of a very busy street in Toronto. All right, here goes. In Des Moines, Creeley meets with his handler, Martin Eggers Hyde. It doesn't say PhD here, but I think it's important to say. Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD, <laughs> who warns Creeley that he'll return him to prison if he doesn't stop the strike. He tells Creeley that he's hired someone to kill both Seth and Amelia, but refuses to reveal the assassin's identity. In Holden, Amelia and D.L. Sullivan decide to start an underground newspaper to spread the truth about the farmer's strike. Creeley searches for the hired assassin, telling Betsy that he needs his brother alive. As Seth practices his shooting to prepare for a showdown with Creeley, he hears someone break into his house. It's Lou Nez, a childhood friend who is also a wanted outlaw. As Seth and Lou terrorize the corrupt banker Calvin Rumpel, Creeley tries to warn Amelia to leave town. When she refuses the warning, Creeley locates the bodies of the three thugs from Chicago who Seth and Amelia killed in the first episode. At the carnival, the hired assassin is revealed to be an elderly vacuum salesman. Uh, what a disguise. He follows Seth and Amelia, but can't distinguish between them and Lou, also in disguise as a preacher and another woman. Just as the assassin is about to shoot, a child screams, seeing the corpse of one of the Chicago thugs on a Ferris wheel. The assassin's bullet hits Lou in the arm. Both Seth and Lou chase the assassin into a nearby cornfield where Creeley warns Amelia to leave town because he knows where the bodies are buried. Seth tracks the assassin to a barn where the assassin gets the upper hand. But before the assassin can kill Seth, Creeley arrives and knocks out the assassin. At gunpoint, Creeley tells Seth that he's going to turn him into the authorities because he's done being punished for Seth's sins. The end. That's the whole den.
<laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you're also the one who's professionally trained to be good at, at TV watching. Um, so we appreciate that expertise. <laughs> yeah, you should. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a really good point, though, also because you can see they're trying to humanize Creeley a little bit more, and they've been doing that the last couple of episodes. Uh, he's not like a, a force of nature or something like that, but he's he's got complicated uh, emotions and a really you know troubled past like Seth does too. And there's the uh, all that kind of exchange he has with Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD in the beginning, also does some of that work too, right? Like you learn that Creeley isn't just a strike strike breaker because he like hates workers. He's kind of stuck with it, um, you know, on pain of potentially going back to prison. Uh, and I think that kind of helps to pull him together as well. Like, he's just a guy who gets buffeted around by these different forces. And you're right, thinking more about Pitchfork Pete as a sort of metaphor for what's driving him maybe uh, is, is a really neat way of getting into his head. Yeah, I think
Yeah, that's really brave. I, I would never do that out of suspicion that he would appear behind me. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. I, I'm, I'm low on salt. I can't afford those, uh, those luxuries like you can. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one is the line that Seth says himself, which kind of picks up on some themes we've drawn out, where he addresses the, the crowd and says, alive or dead, we're all one body, all one community. So he's invoking the, the mystical body of the strike, which is really cool and, and very interesting. Uh, one thing that I thought was kind of, I guess, a bit of a bummer, though, is it seemed like the, the climax of the last um, episode with the big shootout and everything was such a huge deal. Uh, everybody kind of didn't expect that to happen. And, you know, the loss of life so far has been portrayed as being really, really significant in the striking community. But here it kind of just feels like Seth bounces back from it a little too quickly. Uh, and the rest of the community, we don't really get to see them grieving or mourning besides this one uh, short, you know, vignette. And I guess I'm a little worried that the strikers are now becoming sort of a set piece for the rest of the character development. Um, and you know, I, there's a part of me that's more interested in like thinking about Sam Riley's widow interacting with, with this violence or, or this funeral, you know, or, or these other kinds of people who have been giving it their all and might be now questioning whether or not this is a level of violence they're prepared to continue with. Um, so yeah, I, I, I liked what Seth had to say about it, but it almost feel, felt a, a, a bit canned and it made me miss, uh, figuring out what the strikers really think. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, for, they must have. Uh, but it is weird to go from, from that to the carnival mood or to get wrapped back into uh, the mystery of the assassin. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, you know, <laughs> the question is, like, how much of the strike really is a uh, an environment um, and how much of it is the subject of the show? And I think there was a part of me that felt in the beginning of the show that the strike was going to be the, you know, the main focus was some really colorful kind of standout figures. And uh, it seems like maybe the show is turning in a different direction, which is fine. It, it, does, it doesn't make it a bad show or anything, but I think I... Uh, I just want to know. I want to know what all these farmers are are upset about now, and uh, I want to get into that uh, more than I actually want to see um, Seth and the rest of them kind of going through the carnival. As fun as all those scenes are, I love me a good a good depression era carnival scene. But uh, yeah, maybe I want it. I want like I want it in the next episode. I want this episode to be a bummer. Alright. I will. I'll stop complaining about it. I'll I'll let this be a, a good indulgence. Man, I just realized that <laughs> uh, I just finished the third season of Stranger Things, and it's the same exact situation. Yeah, mull around. Um, people can be shot. There can be corpses. Uh, there can be Ferris wheels. It's all there. Uh, well, he's the he's the spooky one at first, right? You don't really know if he's the mysterious assassin or not. Um, and also, Seth doesn't really seem to trust him right off the bat either. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of mystery involved, and the narrative sets you up to assume that maybe he's the secret assassin and not the the vacuum salesman.
<laughs> That's right. Yeah, Lou also seems to be like the key that unlocks some kind of, uh, you know, pent up um, energies <laughs> underneath the inhibitions of being a pastor. Uh, a lot of the, the ministerial uh, look and behavior falls away when Lou comes into town, right? Like not just the drinking, but he gets like looser at the carnival with Amelia. Uh, his sort of public affection is more clear, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's... He seems uh, more troubled, I guess. Um, you know, the the moral strictures that allow him some kind of guidance and keep him on the level to to keep the strike in focus just don't really seem to matter when when Lou is around. Um, and that's also a really interesting thing. Like, it's a piece of Seth's path past that's both kind of endearing, but yeah, I like how you put it, um, Emma. That there's also a a really dangerous sense of amusement there. Um, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah i mean matt did uh when he came uh made me go to the uh, garfield eats restaurant twice so dangerous amusement <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right and we gave it to the carnies to pass it along yeah if you don't have a copy just wait till the carnival comes to town you can get one
<laughs> yeah, they're a good couple. Yeah, it seems to like Seth is always guarded in a certain way. Um, and Amelia, it, it kind of I get the impression that she would like to have more of a, an affectionate or intimate, you know, emotional connection with Seth. Uh, but the fact that he's always refusing to say something about his past uh, stops that from happening. Um, and you do get also the impression that Seth is, uh, I think Tony Toast said it at one point when we did the interview with him, that there's a certain like sociopath energy involved in Seth. Uh, and you see that in their relationship too. Like, I don't know, some, he can be very hot and cold. Like sometimes he's like embracing her after he like relives his trauma. And then other times he's pushing her away because he doesn't want to talk about his trauma. So yeah, um, DL, as a, a nice, clean journalist boy, uh, doesn't have that same kind of baggage. Uh, but it seems like he's willing to uh, be dangerous if the, if uh, he can be pushed into it by Amelia. Um, yeah, they're not equals, I guess, Amelia and DL, in the same way that Seth and Amelia are kind of equals. But that almost makes the, the romance more fun. Also apparently good at shooting. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah although apparently he likes Hemingway so you know he's he's got his finger on the pulse of contemporary style It's about time.
no, no. But before that, before that, uh, they they come into his like uh, I don't know, like big dining room or something, where he's sitting in his pajamas, uh, gorging himself on like fine cheeses and grapes alone. <laughs> I think that's a very good scene too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> and uh put on that cowboy voice Yeah, it's true. I mean, this is also interesting as a, a a way, though, of getting into some of the problems that happen on the left, right? Like arguments people have over left vigilantism and the slow, difficult work of building unions and how those two things can undermine each other sometimes. And it is, I mean, when this was happening, there is something satisfying about seeing Calvin Rumpel extremely frightened and ultimately, you know, pressured into potentially leaving only to get roped back in <laughs> to banking by Creeley threatening him. Basically, he's just buffeted by the forces of violence at all times, um, which I think is a really good image for uh, spineless bankers. Um, but, you know, you, you do get this... Uh, I guess the or I got this weird feeling of like no, don't do this like why are you doing this you're gonna ruin uh, everything that everybody's been building and and even dying for right as we saw in the beginning of the episode uh, it's not like the farmers couldn't have just uh, kidnapped Kevin Rumpel you know <laughs> like three weeks ago and done the same exact thing so the idea that it takes an outlaw like uh, like Lunez to kind of get Seth to the point of abandoning that slow organizing effort. Uh, and do something like this is also really an interesting moment of like character development and, and narrative development in terms of the strike. Yeah, it really undermines the God's body part that he keeps preaching about. (laughs) 
Yeah, but the irony is that Pitchfork Pete, Pete actually means what he says, and Seth doesn't in the same way, which adds another kind of, I guess, layer to it, that Pitchfork Pete is, Pete is out there hanging himself and wrestling so that people will actually come to Jesus, whereas uh, Seth is out there telling people to come to Jesus so that they become strikers. <laughs> True. Yeah, I mean, I just love the idea of this guy being, well, maybe I like it because there was a time in my life when I felt this way, that you're you're so sold out to evangelicalism and making somebody believe in God that, like, you'd be willing to make yourself look like a fool in, in public, uh, not, not to any financial gain or whatever, but because you think this is, you know, a matter of eternal significance or something. Um, and he, he has that moment at the end, right, where he, uh, he like outstretches his arms and talks about like coming to the love of God or something. Um, and I, there's something like painfully authentic about it. And then, uh, later in the episode, you see that same guy, Pitchfork Pete, um, not just wrestling a guy, but the guy's like trying to tap out and he just won't let him, right? There's a kind of like merciless, <laughs> like piece of that whole puzzle. Um, and that to me just seems like a very good representation of the kind of bizarre contradictions of, I don't know, like conservative Protestantism, uh, today and also back then too. <laughs> I'm sure there's a King of the Hill episode about it.
<laughs> okay, yes, but yeah. Yeah. So he's like in he's in the right place at the right time, I guess, for the wolves to be eating these bodies. Uh, but the I don't know the scene is definitely way too convenient because he also so the wolf kind of casually leads him back to the spoils and he follows like the buzzards uh, flying around or whatever, um, and then he just tells the other wolves to like get out of there, which they just do, um, <laughs> which is weird. But then like the body is buried in the shallowest grave ever dug, like, to the point where the face is, like, sticking out of the ground that grass has grown around it. Like, it's the weirdest uh, forensic scene I feel like I've ever witnessed. Because they also show, after they've, you know, killed them in the first episode, like, they dig them real-life graves. Like, uh, I don't know, the surely the erosion hasn't <laughs> hasn't gone, to, you know, to that level, and uh, these, these wolves just, like, happen to only dig it like a hole down to the face of one guy and like somehow got a hand out of it i don't know the whole the whole scene is is bizarre <laughs> yeah that's right uh we got to get him on the case Great Depression SVU is all I'm saying is the show that that I don't think I could stomach watching. Yeah. Okay, but here's here's another place where I cannot suspend my disbelief. He finds the bodies and then I guess he digs one up uh at some point during the day. Uh that seems like an all-day affair to me, but whatever. He digs it up. And uh, he brings it all the way to the carnival. I know we're getting ahead of the, chrono of the chronology here, but he brings it all the way to the carnival. Nobody notices. He just kind of, like, stashes it somewhere uh, and then gets it at just the right time to put it on a Ferris wheel later. I don't know. The whole body thing is just uh, <laughs> strangely handled. <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
with some sunglasses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's like, uh, yeah, what smells like meat, dead meat in your car? And uh, he just replies, uh, why do you smell like piss? Also, give me your ear. So, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, I'm over it now. Yeah. They get pretty busy. The carnival ride is also, isn't it like a, there's some kind of Christian narrative to it as well. Like it, it's something to do with the Den of Lost Souls theme. I can't remember exactly um, what it is, but there's a some insinuation. Yeah, it's like a haunted house based in like Christian mythology. <laughs> yep poor dl um it is a bummer uh and then he also dl goes on it's shortly after that to um repeat the the shooting that seth did at the the game right i guess to like prove his masculinity No, sir. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. We've missed uh, one very important piece, which is the occult fortune teller who appears throughout this episode. Um, I love that. Love the fortune teller because first they, the um, the first interaction is with Creeley, right? I think. Um, yeah, and he's just like wandering through and dismisses all these weird spiritualist platitudes uh, about, you know, seeking your identity, not really knowing what it is, all these spooky phrases and then later when seth has his uh fortune read which is you know pretty risky for a, a protestant minister to do already um the fortune is that seth is running from his past and he needs to confront it right and that becomes a, a pretty good setup for the end as well
right. Matt has the perspective of eternity, you know, birth, life, death, um, all at once. <laughs> we got it. That's right. You got to burn a piece of paper and find out. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Vacuum cleaner turned assassin. <laughs> no, at least twice. <laughs> yeah um it's a good i think the ending is good for a lot of reasons because it pulls together so many threads that get spun out from the beginning um you know like when he, when creely has that conversation with martin eggers hyde phd uh he talks about he mentions you know the the fact that he's going to go back to prison and then by the time you get to the very end uh you find out that creely wants to bring seth in and the the suggestion seems to be that that's the reason that creely was in the prison in the first place um and then in between there he mentions too to bessie at one point that uh he like needs his brother alive um i guess for this like to exonerate him from his own crimes or something uh so that's like a really neat thread that that comes together here uh the fortune teller thread comes together um all kinds of things just seem to come to a head in a really satisfying way mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, that that stuff too. That the line that you mentioned about um, Dunn being punished for his sins is great as well because it's kind of like a he has this perverse like christological, um, you know, position I guess with respect to Seth, uh, kind of using the using scriptural language against him or something, which is really neat, um, and that makes you sympathize with Greeley too as somebody who's unjustly punished.
Yeah, it does. Um, we should talk a little bit more about Bessie for a minute because she has some pretty important narrative development here. Uh, she ends up finding the phone number of Martin Eggers had PhD and calling him up and she gets some information about who is like really pulling the strings in this town uh, and she uses that information to um, help out the sheriff and implies that you know um, if the sheriff doesn't get involved which he hasn't been he stands to basically lose everything that he's created which is his whole argument for not getting involved in the first place right it's all this kind of self-preservation and the the thing that Bessie suggests is that um, you know the forces at work are going to rob him of all the stability that he kind of convinces himself that he has uh, and in exchange he gives her enough money to complete the down payment on a house that she wants to buy uh, so that's like a pretty pivotal um, development point for her. She gets what she she gets the ability to have what she's always wanted, and it's kind of a cliffhanger on her end as well to find out what that will mean going forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, say more about that. Um yeah, say some more about that. What what do you like her? Yeah, she also is, uh, though she has these um, things that make her morally suspect in the, the world that is built in Damnation, right? Like, she's a sex worker, she lies to people sometimes, um, she, like, gets under people's skin. She's also one of the most, like, morally uh, interesting characters because her motivation is just to, like, buy a house and be normal. Whereas everybody else is trying to, you know, cause a stir for one reason or another, um, she's just kind of trying to find some place of like stability i guess and that makes her a really fascinating character and she also like 
she even when the way that she deals with disappointment is really fascinating like you know she feels she's getting really close to Creeley in the beginning and she even like really sticks her neck out for him at one point and you know saves his life uh but then he repays her by essentially reminding her that no this is just a business transaction and like it's not going anywhere and she's like all right then i guess that's what it is and she like doesn't really lose sleep over it and also doesn't uh she doesn't like pine over him even though she still has a certain affection for him and vice versa she like accepts the terms of the relationship and doesn't you know let herself get like pushed around by it and i think that is a really interesting thing um she has this kind of yeah like more moral uh, <laughs> strange like moral motivation um that also allows her to adapt to the situations that are around her <laughs> no, that's fine <laughs> yeah it's gonna be right um yeah, so uh, maybe we should like wrap this uh, episode conversation up um, with some notes about maybe like where we think all this character development is going. So Matt, you've assured us that the strike comes back, and that's really good. Glad to hear that. Um, but I appreciate that Emma uh, encouraged us to take a second look at why this episode is is fun and, and interesting because of all this character development. Uh, I guess, like, for me, um, I'm attracted to the the ways in which these characters interact and, and all that kind of thing, but, you know, I have to sort of admit that I'm, I'm like, too, too didactically brained. Like, I just want to be told what this is about. <laughs> and uh, sitting into it and, like, trying to, to live with some of these people and, and figure that out um, sheds different light on even the, the struggles that are involved uh, in the wider narrative. So, yeah, uh, parting thoughts on where the, the character development in this um, episode gets the show. <laughs> That's good. You should write that spec script. A great duo. It's true, he has. And uh, Pitchfork Pete clearly has a, you know, a, a messianic vision and, and moral mission, so maybe he just needs to, to take the materialist turn. We gotta wait for that novel.
Cool. Uh, well, Emma, thanks so much for coming on the show and chatting with us, with us and uh, sharing your um, your hard-won expertise on uh, professional TV watching. <laughs>